to pull an audible this morning. If you came expecting to continue the Does the Bible Really Say sermon series, Monday morning I decided that uh, I was going to pull an audible. We'll continue that series hopefully later on in the year. But um, watching the news, hearing the news, hearing conversations, I realized that we need to talk about this political world that we are living in today. It's getting pretty ugly out there, isn't it? The campaigning has been, has been mean-spirited at best. The divisions are running deep. Um, both sides are cultivating all kinds of fear. They want you to believe, and they'll keep saying that if the wrong person gets in office, it might be the end of our country. It might just be the end of the world as we know it. The debates are going to start tomorrow night. I don't know if you want to watch or not. That's up to you. The debates have already been going on Facebook. Let me give you some advice. Stick to cat pictures on Facebook. Don't go into the debates there. That's not a great place for political information and discussion. Okay, the, the tensions are running deep. So as God's people, we need to step back this morning. Okay, we need to step back and reset our minds, reset our hearts before we head down this home stretch towards November 8th. So this morning, we're going to look at what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ living in this political world. And I want to invite you next week Sunday night at our 5 o'clock evening service in the main gathering room. That whole 45 minutes to an hour is going to be a prayer service focused on this election. So even if you don't usually come to the Sunday evening service, come next week Sunday night as we pray together for our country, for this election. Um, I invite you to please do that. So if you're now bracing yourself, eager for my declaration of who you should vote for in the coming election, you can relax. That's not going to happen, okay? You can set aside your Republican or your Democrat defenses. You can forget your, 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 your Trump and Clinton debate points that have been honed sharply through the, through the media. Okay, this morning, I need us for a little while to simply forget this two-candidate, two-party brawl that's going on. And we need to instead reestablish our roots in the one place that really matters. Right? If we are truly followers of Jesus Christ, then our identifying affiliation is with God first. It is not with any political party. It is not with any candidate. It is not even with this country. It's with God. And if we think that God is on one side, or God has chosen one party and not the other, that God likes one candidate more than the other, then we need to step back and hear what God has to say, because God isn't on either side. And we see that no more clearly than in Joshua chapter 5. Take out your Bibles. Turn to, to Joshua chapter 5. Let me give you some background here. Uh, Joshua has just become the leader of the nation of Israel. They're heading out of the desert and they're heading into the promised land. They just crossed over the Jordan River and they're about to start their adventure in conquering this land of Canaan. And, and in front of them stands this impregnable fortress called Jericho. And they're, they're a pretty inexperienced army facing this huge city. And so one evening, Joshua 
heads off for a little walk all by himself, probably to clear his mind, to figure out what's going on. And, and he runs into somebody, he has this encounter. Listen to this, Joshua 5, starting at verse 13. It says, now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and he saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down on the ground in reverence and asked him, what message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now, in this encounter, there's Joshua standing face to face with the commander of God's army. And he really asked the same kind of political question that we keep asking each other. Whose side are you on? Who are you going to vote for? Are you voting for Joshua or are you voting for Jericho is the question. Are you a friend or are you a foe? Which camp are you in? And this angel commander's reply isn't what we expect, right? I would expect that the answer would be, I'm on your side, Joshua. God has made you commander, right, of the nation of Israel. Israel are my people. I'm on your side, so, so it's okay. That's not what he says. Joshua says, whose side are you on? And the commander says, Neither. I'm not on your side, I'm not on their side. Right? In our politically charged environment, we're asking that same question. Whose side is God on? Right? Some of us would argue God is definitely a Democrat. Some of us would argue God is obviously a Republican. And God's response is quick and clear. I'm on neither of those sides. You can't put me in a box. You can't put me in, in a political party. God doesn't pick sides. He's neither Republican nor Democrat because God is a category of his own that is much bigger than our political categories. He doesn't fit into our categories. He defies our categories. God doesn't pick one of our sides. Instead, we must pick his side. So if we're asked where our allegiance lies. The correct answer for us as followers of Jesus Christ isn't Democrat or Republican. Instead, above every other affiliation that we might claim, we claim allegiance to Jesus Christ. In some ways, we need to be modern-day theocrats. Right? And theocrats endorse the rule of God above all else. We declare, first of all, that we are on his side. Okay, theocracy is, is an interesting theological concept, but how do we live that out? How do we apply that to the reality of our lives? This whole idea of theocracy, of letting God rule, has been abused. has led to some horrible atrocities throughout history. In fact, it's this whole theocracy idea that has given rise to like the Taliban and ISIS who, who want to put you know, their religious spiritual leaders and their God in charge of all the political systems, right? It's theocracy that led to the Crusades years ago when Christians murdered thousands and thousands of people in the name of God. So how do we let the rule of God, how do we let our loyalty to God first shape our lives? How, does that, how do we relate to government then? 
How do we behave during this election? Well, we need to be, first of all, clear what theocracy is not, what letting God rule is not. Being theocrats doesn't mean that, that we can ignore the political world around us, that we can just say it doesn't matter to us because God is my king. Even if you'd like to ignore this election, you can't. Okay? That's exactly the opposite of what it means for us to be Reformed Christians. As Reformed Christians, yes, we recognize that God is in control. That God is the ultimate ruler. That his kingdom is the only kingdom that will last. Okay? That is truth. But that truth does not then pull us away from engagement in our society. Instead, that truth pulls us more and more into our culture and into our world in order to bring God's presence, in order to bring God's perspectives, in order to be his representatives in this world. Every square inch of this creation belongs to God. And that includes every square inch in Washington and in Lansing and in City Hall. So instead of letting our faith pull us out of politics, instead of saying, God is my king and I don't care about anything else, no. Instead, we must consciously be bringing him into our political decisions and into our political realm. But we must do that very wisely. Right? We need to realize right, how, to, how to use this book that he's given us. You see, God didn't give us the Bible to be a, a government handbook. Right? We get into trouble when we simply take the, the laws, especially the Old Testament laws here, and apply them to our culture today. Because God didn't say, here's, here's, a, here's a direct legal handbook for how you need to run your country and how you need to run your politics. Right? If that was the case, we, you know, we don't need to argue that, that all adulterers be executed, like it says in the Old Testament. We don't need to argue that that all children who are disrespectful of their parents get stoned. I think I'd be speaking to an empty room. I wouldn't be here either. Right? Those laws were given specific time, specific place, specific culture. Instead, we need to read this book and look at the principles and the truths that they protect like sexual purity, like honor and respect of all people and of God's creation, all those truths that remain vital for today. And it's those overarching godly truths that we now bring into our world, into our culture, into our communities, and we make them fit today. And we inject those godly principles as Jesus followers by living them out within this, this secular system that we live in. Right, think about this. Jesus, if you read the Gospels, Jesus never set out to establish a system of government, did he? So if creating a Christian country wasn't Jesus' goal, then it probably shouldn't be our goal either. Right, let's understand this truth very clearly. God's kingdom is not going to come through politics. God's kingdom comes through the church, not through government. 
If we have put all of our hope for our nation in the hands of this political system, in the hands of the political parties, in the hands of the political action committees, in the hands of all the politicians who hold office, then we have gravely misplaced our trust. And we have forgotten where our hope truly comes from. Right, The shalom of God's kingdom that we long for will not come when we finally get the right laws and when we finally get the right rulers. God's kingdom comes when we finally love. It comes through love, not through laws. It comes as God's people scattered all throughout this community and this state and this nation and this world when they begin to live and love like Jesus. God's kingdom comes through people like you and through people like me. God's transforming kingdom comes through this seemingly weak and powerless community called the church. Right? The, the community called the church that the rest of our world could just do away with, that they don't care about. It is this community that God said will change this world. It is this community that will shape this country. It is this community by which the kingdom of God will be ushered into this world. And with that truth in mind, if you truly believe that, with that truth in mind, how, how then does faith and politics intersect in our lives? Well, the Bible gives us a picture of what that intersection looks like. Jeremiah 29. One more passage for us to look at. Jeremiah 29. In Jeremiah 29, God sends instructions to the people of Israel who have just been carried into captivity into the city of Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar. Right? And these exiles, they don't know what to do because all of their expectations have been crushed. You see, they have built their lives on a misunderstanding of faith in politics. The, the nation of Israel, the Old Testament nation of Israel, believed that, that it is th was through their nation that God's kingdom was going to come. That it was through their political rulers that God's kingdom was going to come. They believed that, that Jerusalem was going to be God's city and that the temple in the center of Jerusalem is where God was going to take his throne and rule the world. Right? Politics and religion are one and the same there. And all of a sudden, their city is up in flames. Their city has been destroyed. Their country has been destroyed. They've been taken into captivity. All of their political and religious leaders are either dead or they're now captives in Babylon. Their whole idea of, of church and state being one is literally in ruins and they need a new understanding of what it means to live as God's people now as captives in a foreign land. And listen to God's message to them. Start the, just the first nine verses of Jeremiah 29. It says, this is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jehoiachin and the queen mother, the court officials and the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the skilled workers and the artisans had gone into exile from Jerusalem. He entrusted the letter to Elisa, son of Shaphan, and to Gemoriah, son of Hilkiah, 
whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. And here's what it said. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you have encouraged them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. Now, as much as it might seem that they're, they are worlds away from us today, right? They're halfway around the world. They're thousands of years ago. The truth is their situation isn't really a whole lot different than ours. Because you and I need to remember that we live in occupied territory. If we see our citizenship, first of all, as citizens of the kingdom of God, then we recognize that we are living as captives in a foreign pagan land that has been overrun by sin, that's in rebellion against God's kingdom. And so God's instructions to the people of Babylon really are our instructions today for how we live today in our culture. And notice again that this passage begins by warning us against separating ourselves that we just talked about, right? The end of that passage talks about these prophets and diviners that were telling the exiles what they wanted to hear. They were telling them, you know what? Don't engage in this Babylonian culture because you're going to go back to Jerusalem really, really soon. God's going to come and, and bring you right back. So, so just hold tight. Don't invest here. Don't be a part of this. You're soon to be released. And we as Christians... Isn't it tempting sometimes to, to disengage from the messiness of this world and think, you know, I'm just going to wait for Jesus to come back. I don't want to mess around with politics. I don't want to have to vote. I don't want to have to think it through. Let this world just fall apart because I know God is in control. I know that, that in the end he wins, so I'm just going to sit in my spiritual cocoon and wait for God to rescue me. We're tempted to quit this broken system in Washington. We're tempted to ignore this election if that were possible. We're just going to mind our own business. Forget this world around us. Well, God doesn't let them. He says those prophets are, are telling lies. Those aren't my words. He tells them to get involved in Babylon. Get invested in it. Engage meaningfully with this culture and this community where I have carried you, he says. And he gives us that same command too. He commands us to serve him as our king and to work for his kingdom right here in this culture where he has placed us. And so he says that we as followers of Jesus must engage this culture. Verses five and six, he says to the exiles in Babylon, he says, build houses, settle down, plant gardens and eat what they produce, marry and have sons and daughters, find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. In other words, he says, 
you're going to be here for a while. You're going to be here long enough to put a seed in the ground and to eat what grows from it. You're going to be here long enough not only to see your kids get married, but you're going to be here long enough that you're going to see your grandkids be born here. So you might as well settle in here, okay? Don't put your lives on hold. Settle in. Be an influence right here, right now. And that's how we live as Reformed Christians. We cannot live in this safe religious bubble and ignore the culture around us. We must be fully engaged as God's representatives, and that includes in politics. That means being engaged in this election season. You can't just ignore it, even though you might want to. As citizens of God's kingdom first, we've got to be engaged with the kingdoms of this world. But even beyond that, beyond just being engaged, God calls us in this passage to work for the well-being of this culture as well. We need to serve it. We need to be involved in it. And we need to work to improve it in Jesus' name. Jeremiah challenges these exiles in verse 7. He says, seek the peace and prosperity of this city to which I have carried you. Pray to the Lord for it. Because if it prospers, you will prosper. So in other words, if anybody should be involved in politics, whether it's as a vocation or whether it's simply fulfilling your responsibility to knowledgeably vote, Christians should. Especially those of us who call ourselves Reformed Christians. It is our responsibility, God is saying, to work for the good of this community, of this culture. So it's our responsibility to knowledgeably vote. It's our responsibility to vote according to God's principles and not according to party principles or not according to what will benefit our own economic pocketbook. Not allow ourselves simply to be controlled by one edge of the media. It's our responsibility to vote according to God's commands. And his commands are that we do justly and love mercy. And his commands are that we love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and that we love our neighbor as ourselves. It's our responsibility to vote according to his command to bring peace and shalom to this community and to these people. As Christians, we pray for the culture we're in and we get involved according to God's direction, according to God's commands. And the Bible gives us example after example of of followers of God, people who put God first in their lives and then eagerly engage in politics and work to improve the political culture around them. Starts way back in Genesis, right? You find Joseph, who's second in command to Pharaoh. You read on and you, and you find Daniel. Daniel and his three friends, remember, they're the ones who received this letter from Jeremiah. And they end up, end up being political leaders. Daniel all the way again to being second in command behind the king. Read the book of Esther and you find Mordecai who saves the Persian king Xerxes from assassination. You find Esther, who becomes queen, saves her people from genocide. Read through the the Old Testament, you'll find Nehemiah. Nehemiah, who becomes cupbearer to King Cyrus. And a cupbearer is more than just a kitchen help. Cupbearer was the most trusted advisor that a king had. In the New Testament, you have Jesus followers like Nicodemus, who are still leading the Jewish the Jewish religious and political world. You find Theophilus, to whom Luke wrote both of his books of the Bible. He was most likely a mid-level Roman official 
And on and on you find people engaged in politics, working in their world to improve it in Jesus' name. But if you read those stories, you also find out what they didn't do. They didn't try to pass laws to impose worship of God or to impose Christianity on all society through the political realm. Joseph didn't try to convince Pharaoh to make the worship of God a mandatory practice. Daniel didn't try to pass laws closing down all the stores in Babylon on the Sabbath. Mordecai didn't try and convince the king that everybody should be forced to bow down to God. Right? Instead, instead they brought God into that system. And we can learn from them three callings that we today as Christians have in this political world. Three things, three tasks that are given to us, those of us who follow God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. And they start here. First of all, it's our job as followers of Jesus first to remind the government of its place. Right? When earthly powers, when earthly governments take a hold of power and authority that doesn't belong to them, when they take a hold of power and authority that belongs only to God, we as citizens of the kingdom of God serve as witnesses that there is a greater power, there is a greater authority that even they must submit to, that they must obey. So in the Old Testament, Daniel, he's commanded to bow down to the statue that King Darius raised up, right? And he's commanded to pray to nobody but the king. And Daniel refuses. When it's time to bow down, he will not bow down. And when it's time to pray, he goes and he prays three, day, three times a day to the true God. Peter in the New Testament, the, the, authority, the Jewish authorities haul him aside and they command him not to teach about Jesus anymore. And what does he do? He replies to them and he says, we must obey God rather than men. And he goes right back to teaching about Jesus in the temple. We remind the government of its place. Dietrich Bonhoeffer did that. He was a Christian pastor in World War II Germany. And as the Nazi party gained power and authority, it exerted its influence over the Christian church in Germany as well. It really was a sad chapter in the Christian church's history. And one of the things that they did is they demanded that all Christian pastors sign off on this simple oath. You must sign on the bottom line this. I swear that I will be loyal and obedient to Adolf Hitler, the leader of the German Reich and people. Sign on the bottom line. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, you have crossed the line. That is beyond your power. That is beyond your scope. And he refused to sign. And it cost him his life. His ultimate allegiance was to the kingdom of God. And he reminded the government of its place in God's world. And you and I must have the courage to remind the government that it never was and it never will be God. And with that perspective clearly declared, we must help our government understand both the truth of humanity and the truth of hope. Both of those things. Our, our kingdom perspective gives us insight into humanity that our society and our politicians need to know. 
We know the human heart because God has taught us about it in his book. We know the power of evil and the influence of Satan in this world. We know human fallenness that needs to be kept in check within all of us. And we know, because Paul tells us clearly, that left on our own devices, we will abuse each other, we will abuse the system, we will find every loophole for selfish gain. That's the way sin has marred every single one of us. And those truths need to be taught. They need to be known to create a society that's guided by true justice. We need to make sure they understand humanity. And at the same time, we need to make sure that they understand where our only hope comes from. True hope for this country and true hope for us as individuals does not come from us doing the right things. True hope only comes from God. So hope to conquer crime in our nation, it doesn't come only from more police on the street. It comes from hearts that are softened to each other. And hope to defeat poverty in our nation, and our world, it doesn't only come from increasing taxes for social services. It comes from hearts that care about the poor. And it comes from hands that are generous in what they give. Hope to protect the environment doesn't only come through more stringent environmental laws. It comes from, from eyes that recognize this world as God's great gift to be cherished and honored. Hope for true peace among people doesn't only come from the number of weapons we have to deter violence. It doesn't only come from our right to carry a gun. It comes from the actions done out of the same selfless love that Jesus modeled for us. We often fall into the trap of believing that the government can create for us some kind of heaven on earth if we just get the right people, and if we just implement the right laws, if we just get all the right policies in place. The truth is the government is never going to save us. The truth comes in Psalm 121, where it says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. That's where our hope lies. And with that hope, clearly in our minds and in our hearts, now it's our task, our opportunity to invite the government to join us on God's mission. God is the one who set up these earthly systems, including political system. And he did it to work towards his kingdom goals. Romans 13 verse 4 tells us that, that the government is God's servant to do good. He designed it to do good, to work for his kingdom purposes. And there's ways that we can help do that. Our government is God's tool to bring his kingdom here on earth. They don't always do a good job of it, but that's the intention. God wants the government to defend those who can't defend themselves. God wants the government to protect the widows and the orphans. God wants the government to give voice to those who are voiceless. God wants the government to help care for the poor, to bring justice to those who have been wronged and to bring justice to those who have done wrong. God wants the government to carry the sword and to use it wisely and judiciously. And none of those things are either Democrat or Republican issues. Those are God issues. And sometimes, honestly, it's the Democrats who champion what God desires. Sometimes it's the Republicans. Sometimes it's both. 
Sometimes it's neither. But as followers of Jesus Christ, it must always be us. We must always be championing the issues that God calls us to champion as Jesus first followers. So you and I, we need to engage this election primarily as God's people, as Jesus first people. That means we do the work of engaging our Christian minds as we decide who we're going to vote for. That means we treat everyone with honor and respect through this process, especially those we disagree with. It also means that we refuse to be controlled by fear because we know and we believe that no matter who becomes president, God remains king. We ground ourselves in that truth, in the truth of Psalm 46. In fact, over the coming weeks, over the next 50-some days or 40-some days, whatever it is, maybe we need to read Psalm 46 a few more times. Maybe you need to mark it in your Bible. Maybe before you watch the news that night or after you watch the debate, come back here and hear these words. God is our refuge and our strength. Let me read that again. God is our refuge and our strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, the mountains quake with their surging, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her and she will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in an uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice and the earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and see what the Lord has done. The desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars to cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and he shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. He says, and maybe these are the words we need to hear from God. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob, he's our fortress. You pray with me. Father, our nation is in uproar. There's tumult. There's tension. There's arguing, bickering, fighting, angry words going back and forth. In the middle of all of that, Father, speak into our ears and into our hearts. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Help us, Father, to be Jesus' first followers. Give us great wisdom and discernment. Motivate us, Father, to seek your will. 
Give us hearts that are set on your kingdom purposes above all else. And may you usher your kingdom in through us. May we be your voice in the middle of all of this clamoring. Father, help us to truly believe that you are God. Sometimes our actions speak otherwise. Sometimes we believe that there's a power greater than you. But help us to truly believe that you are God, that you are king, and nothing will shake that truth. And help us, your community called the church, to do exactly what you designed us to do, to bring your kingdom here onto this earth. Don't let us, don't let us default our responsibility to any government or any organization because you have you have given your Holy Spirit's power to this community to us the church and you have said that the gates of hell will not prevail against us when we're moving in your kingdom's purposes so Father give us the courage to be Christians in this culture and bring your kingdom in through us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to take our offering. Uh, our offerings this morning are for the ministries here at Ivan Rest Church. Again, as Mindy reminded you, there's connection cards for either prayer requests or any information you might need. And while we take our offering, we're going to uh, hear a song and see the words up on the screen that challenge us in our commitment, invite us in our commitment.